right, well friends, welcome back. Thank you for joining us even on a uh, time change Sunday. You guys are the true heroes. So if you wanna give yourself a pat on the back, please do. Um, welcome to module two of our Pauline class. So um, already after our first class, we have um, made a course correction. So we, uh, as I was kind of preparing this week and just finalizing our notes, uh, I realized that 1 Corinthians is very long, uh, and so is 2 Corinthians. And so we're going to do a little bit of a course correct uh, over our time together, where today we're going to do 1 Corinthians, and probably not get through it all, to be quite honest. Next week we're going to do 2 Corinthians, um, and then the final week we will still do special is issues in Paul. So just making a little bit of an adjustment, uh, mostly for time and mostly because um, condensing is not my gift. So... Um, <laughs> So thanks for jo joining us. Thanks for jumping along uh, on that and just allowing for flexibility, even though it's like kind of imposed upon you. Um, so there's just a couple things that I would suggest to you guys over uh, this time. Is the first, if you brought a Bible, to have it out. Um, there will be some times on the screen where there'll be like scripture reference uh, in which you can find the particular scripture. Um, but it will be helpful to have your Bibles out to kind of follow along with our stream of thought, uh, Paul's flow. Uh, and kind of some of our notes as well. So if you have a Bible with you, please open it uh, and turn to 1 Corinthians, because we're going to kind of be going um, chapter by chapter. My hope, and, and like breaking it up into a couple sections, my hope is that with um, 1 and 2 Corinthians is that by the time you are, we are done, is that you will have like a very uh, like rough outline of the whole book of 1 Corinthians. So you could reference in your mind... Um, some of the pieces that you maybe would like to remember. So like, for instance, um, after this module, I would hope um, that you would know that, you know, in 1 Corinthians 11, we have the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 15, we talk about the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 2, we talk about, um, oh, I should know this, but it slipped my mind now that I have it. Now that I'm trying to flex my knowledge, here we go. Oh, uh, yeah, the power of the gospel. You know, so they're like, so that's kind of what I want you to, to be able to have is like almost a quick reference guide in your mind so that in your conversations, in your study, uh, you're able to kind of have those moments to be able to, to refer to and look back on um, so that you can kind of find a quick reference and dig into what you're hopefully talking about, thinking about, praying about, um, journeying and discovering as well. Um, so that's kind of my hope with, with our kind of book studies that we're going to be doing today and next week. Um, I do want to bring a little bit of a clarification to something that I said last week. Um, we were talking about the office of apostle and the office of um, prophet. And I made a comment saying that um, apostles and prophets, the office of apostle and the office of prophets uh, are not for today. They don't happen today. Um, and I think that was maybe a little bit of a stronger uh, kind of reference than I was hoping or intending to make. And so in terms of like the capital A apostle that we find in the Bible or in scripture, um, had a kind of a, a little bit of a, a different level and understanding of authority that was given to them by God as the apostles that we find in scripture. And so they were the ones who, of course, formulated the early church. Um, Paul was an apostle, wrote a lot of theology and uh, books of the Bible. And so they had a kind of special type of authority that was given to them during that time. Now, people today can still have, a, like, do apostleship, have apostleship. Um, we, we made reference to something like uh, a global partner or a church planter or somebody like that that would typically have that apostleship um, of them, but it's kind of like a lowercase a apostleship, if you will. Um, and so the, the nature of the um, kind of 
authority that the apostles in the Bible had is different than the authority that we have now. Uh, because we don't add to scripture anymore. We're not formulating theology. So I just wanted to make a little bit of a clarification on that because I think I spoke too strongly. Uh, and so thank you for your understanding and grace in that. If you want to talk with me about it after, please feel free. Otherwise, uh, we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians. So before we jump into the actual book itself, we need to know the context. Um, because like we said last week is jumping into a letter uh, because it's so situational and so specific to like a certain church or a certain area in the world is that context is really important. And so we're going to kind of gain our bearings, so to speak, about the city of Corinth. So in Paul's missionary journey, uh, he founded the Corinthian church during his second missionary journey. We can find that referred to in Acts 18. Um, and this was likely done between AD 51 to 52. And so that's kind of when he wrote it. Um, now, there are also, beyond uh, just scriptural um, reference to it, there is also uh, Roman records, uh, particularly from somebody named Gallio. He was a proconsul in Rome uh, that confirmed Paul there during this date. So we actually kind of have two um, kind of confirming accounts, both scriptural and non-scriptural, that confirm that Paul was there during that time. And so it's something that we can kind of trust in and, and uh, believe to be true. So that was the missionary journey in which he wrote it. Um, now, where was it written? So 1 Corinthians was actually written in 55 AD. This is about like three-ish years after he had founded the church. And he actually wrote it from Ephesus. So Paul was not in, you know, obviously not in Corinth when he wrote it because then he would just be able to deliver that message to them. So he was in Ephesus and he wrote this letter to the Corinthians. And so to give you an idea of the Corinthian churches, the Corinthian church was made up of a number of house churches. So um, it would be like these smaller gatherings of people that um, met in people's houses and, and kind of opened scripture together, walked through some of those uh, key tenets of the early church together. So it was considered one church. Paul references the Church of Corinthians. And so that's all of these house churches made up into one. Um, but it was very conflicted and it was very divided. Um, and there was significant infighting that we will see kind of as we open 1 Corinthians together. And so it's kind of these number of house churches that kind of made up one big church in Corinth. Now, the city of Corinth uh, was, a, was a pivotal Greek city. It was very pivotal, um, not just for the formulation of faith and the spreading of the gospel, but in terms of like the Greco-Roman world, uh, was, really, was a really pivotal Greek city. So it was actually destroyed um, early in history, but it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 BC. Um, so it was actually considered to be a relatively new city at its time of being rebuilt. And then it was totally destroyed by Rome in 146 AD. So it's situated on uh, the Isthmus leading to the southern peninsula of the country. And Isthmus is like a um, land bridge between two different bodies of water. And so merchants would often port their cargo through Corinth so they didn't have to sail all the way around the peninsula. So there was some type of um, easy movement that they could kind of portage all of their things through Corinth and then into the next peninsula. And so there was a lot of movement in between the city. It was a key commercial, cultural, and religious center. Um, and it was a center of trade. And because it was a center of trade, uh, there was kind of this cultural and religious melting pot that happened because people would use this port city um, from all around the world. And so we see this melting pot um, of, of culture, of religion. Um, now, because it was a Greek city, 
Um, typically, in terms of the architecture and the temples and some of the structures that we see there, as much of it was uh, centered around Greek, Greek religion, but it's kind of this cultural melting pot. And central to its religious expression was the worship of Aphrodite, uh, which, which involved a high rate of cult prostitution. So she had, or the temple was built for Aphrodite there. Um, there was also a couple of other ones as well that we see throughout history. But Aphrodite kind of was the Greek goddess in which that they uh, would typically worship there. And since she is the goddess of love, uh, it involved a high rate of cult prostitution as a result. Now, the city of Corinth was known to be very immoral. Um, it, even by like kind of those standards, was considered to be very immoral. Um, in fact, calling somebody a Corinthian was a very, very offensive term during that time. So if they said, like, hey, you're, you're acting like a Corinthian right now, um, it would be known to be offensive because that's kind of like the, the setting in which people um, would kind of know what they mean by that. And so it was somebody who uh, would typically be full of debauchery, hedonism, unbridled kind of passion. And so uh, if you called somebody a Corinthian back then, it would be very offensive. Um, so now that we know that, don't call anybody else that either. So there are some characteristics that influence Corinthian culture. The first one is economic growth. So because it was a port city, there was a lot of economy that happened there. There was a lot of trading and selling and buying of goods. Um, there is an independent spirit that Corinthian, the city of Corinth had. Um, because it was a, a relatively young city, it had no kind of ruling elite or upper class. And so as a result, um, there was kind of this independent spirit that people had where they were very um, focused on self. There wasn't as much structure uh, around kind of the social aspects, and so it allowed people uh, to be independent. There was a big entertainment culture there. Um, so, for instance, there's the Isthmian Games that happened. Professional speakers would often come through. Philosophers and uh, rhetoricians debated there, and they debated there in such a way that it was like entertainment. Um, and so they had a big entertainment culture there as well. There is an emphasis in Corinth on the Greek virtues of wisdom and knowledge. Um, and that was something really important for them. The word uh, knowledge there is gnosis. And uh, that will kind of, uh, again, wisdom and knowledge will kind of formulate a lot of Paul's response to the Corinthian church. And then finally, oh, no, not finally. Uh, there's a spirit and flesh duality. So this was often considered that your spirit and your flesh were like opposite to each other. They're not connected. Um, and so as a result, that influenced the way that they lived. And so the result of that was that they were either extremely ascetic, where they would deny their bodies, deny themselves, um, because they thought that their body was useless, useless and worthless, or they swung the pendulum to the other side and were incredibly hedonistic and just lived with, in whatever way they wanted, as a Corinthian, uh, so to speak, um, because it didn't matter, because your spirit was separate and, in, and uh, would never come together with your flesh. And then finally, there was politic, the politics of power brokering. So although there was this independent spirit, there wasn't much of a ruling elite or upper class, there was uh, a very high value on power. The power that you held over people, um, oftentimes their wisdom or their knowledge would be a source of uh, bargaining and, and increasing your power. And so that was really popular kind of around there. Um, any questions about kind of some of those key pieces of Corinthian culture? It is important for us to understand a lot of this because a lot of this um, will be addressed and bleed into the way that the church was. Yes. Yeah. Amazing how, you know, all of these years later, uh, we see so many uh, parallels to our culture. 
Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Um, a lot of times you'll see this as, uh, as very common to the way that we live, our, or that our society lives as well. So this letter, uh, as we can see with some of the, the issues of, of Corinth, will illuminate some of the challenges of following Jesus in a secular culture. Um, and also kind of how to address these challenges, both as uh, people in authority and people in the church and believers just in general. And so uh, that is kind of like our, our really quick overview of Corinth. That gives us a little bit of like gaining our bearings of the city, the culture, some of the values that they held, um, because a lot of it does have to do with the way that, the way and what, and with what Paul addresses the Corinthian church. Great. All right, we're going to jump into the actual book of 1 Corinthians, uh, because chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, are hints of what to come. I know that when I often read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 to 9, it's like a quick breeze through because it's just like the greeting piece. Uh, but it actually shows us a lot of clues about what's to come in terms of the way that Paul addresses the people, uh, some of the issues at hand. So Paul begins uh, the very first by establishing his apostolic authority. And so this is typically, as you read Paul's letters, a hint that there are issues to come. Um, because his apostolic authority was, was one of his credentials that he would often use to be able to um, kind of set and gain his like, authority over the church as the one who planted it. And so when you see an apostolic kind of authority being um, leveraged in his greeting, oftentimes that means that there are issues ahead. And so Paul then, after that, uses specific language about the Corinthian status. The first one, and this is a Corinthian church, their status, is that they're sanctified. That they're set apart to be different um, by nature of their transformation in Christ. So when we know the context of the cultural milieu that we just kind of walked through, um, this kind of set apart by their nature, their nature is set apart in Christ, uh, this is actually carries even more weight, and it gives us a glimpse of the issues at hand. Because Paul is saying, like, hey, you are sanctified. You are set apart from this culture. You are set apart from maybe what is going on around you. And then finally, another status piece, but um, this time more generally as believers, is that they're together. So Paul says, like, together uh, with the Spirit. And there is unity, or he's, he's vying for unity in the tangible expression of the church. And so we see some of these status pieces about um, Corinthians, just even in his salutation, even in his like greeting towards the church, um, that kind of gives us a clue of what he's going to be talking about. So the next thing that we jump into is Thanksgiving. Uh, and if you'll remember from last week, or if you watched last week, we kind of talked through some of those pieces of a, of a typical Greco-Roman letter. So, so far, Paul is kind of tracking. So there's a Thanksgiving. And I find it very funny that Paul says he's thankful for a difficult church. Um, because there is certainly a sense of irony in this. Like they, uh, you know, other uh, commentators on 1 Corinthians say that like Corinthians was kind of the most messed up church that we see in the Bible. And so he begins to thank them uh, for this, this like difficult church. And so I find that there's a sense of irony in this. But I think there's also a grateful, grateful reflection of the church in its infancy. Um, we see that uh, in, in verses 5 and 6, that the verbs used there are past tense. And I think they're past tense because Paul's having a little bit of a reflection here on the church in its infancy, of some of the things that um, marked them as believers in Christ. And so we see in this beginning uh, Thanksgiving, we see three things that the Corinthians took pride in. The first two are their speech and their knowledge. Um, and that was obviously typical of what the Corinthians uh, as a city Again, we already recognize that, that, that um, knowledge and 
in, in, in their speech was incredibly important. Rhetoricians would come, people who would essentially argue for entertainment, which is interesting. Um, and their knowledge that they would kind of express in that arguing um, would be something that the Corinthian church also took pride in as well. But Paul is careful in this to remind them that these are gifts from God, that their eloquent speech, that their wisdom, um, their knowledge are gifts from God, and they're not things to foster pride. And then the third is them being uh, what we call pneumatica. That's a, that's a Greek word, um, and that meant spiritual things or spiritual people. Now, the word pneuma is a word that we have for spirit, uh, both in the Bible and in Greek language. And so this was a, a, a label that the Corinthian church and people who were just religious in Corinth uh, would put upon themselves. And this pneumatica, the spiritual things or spiritual people, would be like a status symbol where they could be like, well, I'm spiritual. And it would be like this um, piece of their identity that they would hold and that they would kind of leverage over other people. And they had all these ways that they would, you would become more spiritual and that would kind of um, elevate you higher and higher uh, in the ranks of spiritual people. Um, but Paul, in response to calling them pneumatica, spiritual people, um, uses his characteristic term for spiritual people or spiritual gifts here. That is charismata. Um, and I find that very interesting that he, he uses this very, like, Pauline word because charis um, is the Greek word for grace. And so charismata, by using that word instead of pneumatica, uh, he is, Paul is asserting that, that uh, their spirituality is rooted in the grace of God. And so it's very interesting that he chooses that word very carefully to call them uh, charismata instead of pneumatica, because he's trying to re remind the Corinthian church that their um, ability to be spiritual is a grace from God. And so Paul kind of begins to counter some of that um, pride that the, the Corinthian church would have. So in these nine verses, uh, from all the way from verse 1 to verse 9, Christ is mentioned nine times. So he is almost mentioned like one time per verse. And so this will give us a clue again that uh, there's an emphasis on kind of the Christocentric focus of this letter. Um, so Christ is very central to this letter, and we see that in him referencing Christ nine times, like Christ or Jesus Christ, nine times in these first nine verses. And so these give us some clues, what's to come, some of the values that Paul wants to communicate to them. Any questions on the salutation? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm pretty sure that it is uh, about 15 years, I believe. He, he took a long time to start his ministry um, after his conversion experience. We see in Philippians um, that he, and Galatians, I believe, that he, he spent a significant amount of time kind of almost like retraining himself um, from a Pharisee that persecuted the church to an apostle for the church. And so I think it's about 15 to 20 years after his conversion. So he spent a lot of time preparing. <laughs> awesome. So the next thing we're going to see of what's to come uh, are divisions. So this is, oh yes, Christocentric focus of this letter. So what's to come? Divisions is what's to come. So this is all the way from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to 4, verse 21. It's a pretty big section. Um, so we are going to start off with the problem. So this four-chapter section deals with the issue brought up by somebody named Chloe and their household um, of house leaders causing factions in the wider body by aligning with others based upon favorite celebrity preachers, which is funny. <laughs> and so uh, that's where we see, like, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, 
Um, I follow Christ. That's where we see that in this uh, letter here. And so it's very funny. There's like, there's like the Paul uh, faction. There's the Apollos faction. Um, there's the Jesus faction. And so we see that these celebrity pastors are um, kind of causing division amongst the church. And so Chloe, who was a house leader, um, she would be considered like somebody who was given authority by Paul the Apostle to lead this particular house church. Um, he, they send a letter to Paul saying, hey, these are some things that are going on here. Um, there are celebrity pastors that are cropping up that everybody's like loving. And so in this, um, Paul appeals to them in verse 10 to do a couple things. The first one is agree, simply. <laughs> so take the same side to stop the divisions that are being created. And when, when we read the word divisions, uh, it's actually the picture that we see is, uh, is of a tearing, a tearing typically of flesh. And so we see that this isn't just like a mere disagreement with each other or like a mere preference that uh, people in Corinth are in the Corinthian church are expressing, but something that's causing a tearing of the body, a tearing of the flesh of the body. And so these are more significant than I think we can sometimes read. He appeals to them to have the same uh, mindset and to have the same judgment or discernment. Now, when we read this, uh, I don't think Paul's encouraging the Corinthian church to have um, a unilateral opinion where all of them are just on the same like, board in terms of like robot um, agreeing upon each other. But I think the mindset in which they're talking about is actually the mindset of Christ, of, of him being the central part of their focus, of him being the one um, in which they worship. Sorry, could you say that again? Oh, Siri, she, she's wanting to join in on our conversation. Um, is to have the mindset of Christ, uh, which is that they follow him, that, that that is their central focus, not necessarily the celebrity pastors that they're kind of following. So Paul's focus in this, uh, in verse 17, is to have Christ-centered proclamation of the gospel, um, not influenced by the oratory presentations that wowed the Corinthians, um, which is really what they were starting to do. And so that's why he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so his focus is not that we align uh, with the celebrity pastors, but instead um, that we align around Christ. And so the question that I have, and I'm sure that you all uh, were laughing, we're going to have a red light moment here, is uh, do you see this same thing in kind of the capital C church today? Uh, why or why not? And when I say capital C church, I don't mean like just evangel, but like the wider church. Um, and so do we see this kind of issue in our, in our kind of church today, capital C church? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's actually quite common. Um, why do you guys think that? Some of you who are nodding, like, what's your thoughts? Right. I'm okay. Just so you guys know, I'm going to be repeating you a lot, uh, just for our online community who's listening, they don't get the questions. And so I'm going to try and repeat it. But yes, uh, part of the reason is because the prosperity gospel is very winsome, but quite, um, shallow and empty. Um, but initially, I think it's very, um, like, it's a sexy kind of gospel that sounds really great, uh, but doesn't have much substance. Any other thoughts? Awesome. Well, I think that this is the case. Um, if you open up your phone, if you open up your Explore page on Instagram, you'll often see some of these celebrity pastors and their reels and all their great things. And um, so I do think that this is kind of pervasive today. And, and although it's great that we can learn from um, different pastors and different preachers and different people of God, um, I think that there is something incredibly um, important and valuable about having a shepherd in your own church 
that is there to shepherd you consistently. Um, and so sometimes that means that we can like tune out that same voice. Um, I'm sure maybe some of you are doing that this morning because I both preached this morning and I'm teaching today. And so you're like, see ya. Um, but I think that there's actually something incredibly valuable by having the same voice in your life. Um, because it's a voice that journeys with you. It's a voice that knows you. It's a voice that walks with you. Um, and so although like those like celebrity pastors, and I, it's, it's a weird term, but those celebrity pastors um, can often give good things they will never be people who walk with you through grief. They will never be people who are able to reach out to you in a time of need. Um, and so I think that there's something incredibly important about um, having the same voice in your, in your congregation or the same you know, small number of voices in your congregation because I think there's a, a level of discipleship that we don't get to have. Now, I'm not saying that um, large churches are like inherently bad or inherently shallow or any of those things. Um, because if you go to that church, that will be the main voice in your pulpit, is that pastor. And so I think that there's something incredibly valuable about that, because having a small group of voices that often speak into your life um, is helpful, because they walk with you, they know you, um, they know some of the things that you, uh, that make up part of your story. And so I think it's always funny when, um, like I know my dad when we were pastoring, there, were, there would be times where he'd be frustrated because he was like trying to communicate something to the congregation, and so he would like phone up um, like somebody from district and say, hey, do you want to preach on this this weekend? They're like, yeah, of course. And they would come and they would preach that same message that my dad is trying to like encourage the church to understand. And they'd be like, wow, this pastor really just like had this talk about this. And like, I'm walking in that. And my dad's like, yeah, that's what I've been trying to tell you for like a long time now. And so I think that there, uh, it can be easy to kind of tune out those voices, but I think there's something incredibly valuable having a small amount of voices um, be the ones that get to walk with you in discipleship. Um, and so I think that this is obviously was persisting in Corinthians as well. And so it's great that we're not experiencing a new issue today, uh, but scripture speaks to it with wisdom. Any last thoughts about that? Any pushbacks? Yes. Yeah, that's a great thought. Yeah, as you can have, it allows you an easy way to shop. You can shop online uh, for the pastor that kind of says the things that want to prop up your bias, says the things that maybe want to prop up the way that you're feeling. Yeah, no, that's great. It's a good thought. Awesome. We're going to turn to the centrality of the cross. This is where Paul moves from these divisions um, to speak of the centrality of the cross. And so uh, this section kind of turns to the underlying cause of the division. And so here Paul contrasts the Greek culture of being preoccupied with wisdom and with power and how to this type of reasoning, Greek wisdom, Greek power, um, the gospel message seems like folly. It would seem like folly to their understanding because it's a very opposite way of showing, of showing power. And so linking the power of the cross in verse 17 to this passage, Paul is exalting the work of Christ on the cross as the true source of wisdom and power. And so the folly spoken here in, in preaching the gospel is that it satisfi satisfied neither Greeks nor Jews. So the folly of the gospel is that it didn't satisfy Greeks and it didn't satisfy Jews. Because the Jews expected uh, signs that came from like a politically triumphal Messiah at that time, which they didn't get. Uh, they didn't really get that politically triumphal Messiah that they were expecting and hoping and kind of pining for. Um, and the Greeks were expecting sophisticated wisdom, but they could not see the reasoning of salvation through a criminal's death which would be to them the opposite of power. It would be like 
literally like the most um, shameful and kind of um, powerless way of, of dying. And so they were, they were not able to grasp that understanding of salvation. So for the Jews, the stumbling block is that the cross didn't line up with their expectations. And for the Greeks, it was just pure lunacy. Like, it was just crazy. It was crazy talk. Um, and so that was kind of where it, it was a stumbling block to the Jews and a stumbling block to the Greeks. But for those, Paul says, who have been and then are being, the word uh, is, is a continuous tense, so it's not just like it happens and it's over, but it's like happening continuously. Uh, for those who have been and are being saved, it is both the power and the wisdom of God. And, and the reality is um, this lunacy or, or the stumbling block that we see of the gospel is still present today. Um, it's, it's kind of comforting as you read these books to, to realize that like the human condition is like very much the same. <laughs> like that doesn't really like change a whole lot in terms of our human condition. And so these same stumbling blocks happen uh, today in our world as well. And so Paul says that their own experience actually attests to this, that the, that the, uh, that the cross is a center of, of God's power and wisdom and knowledge. Because he says, none of you are wise or powerful, um, which to me I'd be like, well, rude. Uh, but he says, hey, none of you guys are wise or powerful, yet you guys have all experienced the life-transforming power of the cross. And so he says, like, in, in the world standards, like, you actually aren't wise, and yet you've experienced this incredible transformation in your life. And this is kind of God's great reversal, and we see what this talks about in, in verses 26 to 31. And so as a result, uh, God's wisdom leaves no room for boasting in self. And so the Corinthians' divisiveness was kind of doing that, whereas boasting in self was boasting in being this, like, knowledgeable, powerful, pneumatica, spiritual person. Um, and yet, Paul is saying here that God's wisdom leaves no room for boasting of self. It only leaves room for boasting of Christ. And uh, we actually read this this morning, but the fear that Paul's referring to in, in chapter 2, verse 3, which says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and message were not of plausible words of wisdom, on and on. So the, the, the fear that he's referring to in chapter 2, verse 3, is not a fear of man. It's actually not a fear of the church, of the people in it, uh, but it's a fear of capitulating to the culture and watering down the message. So he came to them in much fear and trembling that they were going to water down the message of the gospel because it was more palatable for the wisdom and kind of knowledge of the age. Um, and so that's what Paul means by both the fear there and also emptying the, the cross of its power. And so we see that Paul, uh, again, wraps this like kind of Christocentric, this um, wrapped around Jesus, um, kind of message to this piece as well, to their divisiveness that they were experiencing. And so Paul is beginning to dismantle um, the Corinthian church's kind of misplaced understanding of wisdom and also their fascination with cultural wisdom, so to speak. And so we're going to jump into the next section here, uh, which is the power of the gospel. And this is chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. So like I said, after dismantling the Corinthians' misplaced fascination with wisdom— Paul then makes the point that his message is actually, in fact, one of wisdom. So he, miss, he, he like tears apart all of the Corinthians' fascination with wisdom, and then he says, hey, we're like kind of pulling apart this understanding that you have, and I'm saying that my message is one of wisdom. 
Um, and it's not this special wisdom to be known by a select few, but it is to be grasped by all of those who have been transformed by the Spirit. Because uh, part of this like wisdom or knowledge in Corinthian culture was that it was, it was a commodity. And so you would be able to share it with people and it was kind of only for you. Um, and that would be like the secret that you would keep. Um, and as a result, that would make you powerful because you were holding some piece of knowledge that somebody else didn't have. And so that would be kind of part of that power brokering that we find in the Corinthian culture. Uh, but Paul here is saying is that uh, it's not some wisdom to be known by just the few, to be like given away in piecemeal as you feel that it should be, but it's instead grasped by all of those who are transformed by the Spirit. And he says, hey, Corinthians, if you were as spiritual as you say, then I wouldn't have had to write this letter in the first place. Like, if you were truly as spiritual as you guys kind of boast that you are, this message, this letter would not even need to be for you because you would have grasped all of those things of the cross. You would have grasped the wisdom that comes um, in Jesus' death and his resurrection. And as a result, you would have been transformed by the Spirit. And so uh, he is kind of claiming that they may feel that they're spiritual, but they're actually not as spiritual as they think they are. Um, well, we actually see with 2 Corinthians that... Um, much of what I think was commanded in this letter and suggested in this letter, uh, that they doubt and that they actually bring to question his apostolic authority. And so we see that 2 Corinthians is actually more severe than 1 Corinthians, although 1 Corinthians is quite severe, um, because they weren't really catching a lot of what he was trying to say, and so he becomes a little bit more um, harsh and extreme. So it would not be a very palatable um, message to them. Sometimes when we read this, it's like, like we see it as kind of like, oh, a little bit, you know, but it would be extremely challenging to the Corinthians, um, and particularly to their pride. So yeah, we do see that there's like a, um, like a greater s severity in his letter in Second Corinthians, because um, the Corinthian church was then beginning to question a lot of his credentials, as a result of, I think, the fact that they were like offended. Cool, so we're going to go uh, kind of back, Paul, Paul moves back to division. Um, so he talks about the centrality of the cross, the power of the gospel, and then back to division again. And this is found in chapter 3, verses 1 to 23. So in the first passage that we looked, about, looked at about division, Paul uses the natural versus spiritual person, um, kind of in his, in his rhetoric and his argument here. But here, in chapter 3, Paul defines this as an issue of maturity. So he uses that kind of duality of the flesh and the spirit in one part, and then he also then says uh, that this is also an issue of maturity. Because the Corinthians think themselves as spiritual. They really do. They were these pneumatica. They were spiritual people. But Paul calls them infants and people of the flesh. Um, and again, this would have been extremely offensive to their pride. Because he says, you're not spiritual at all. You're infants in Christ. You're infants in faith. You're infants in knowledge and wisdom. Um, and you're people of the flesh. Now, here's a very Pauline concept. We, we see it in other parts of Scripture, but this is a very, very Pauline concept. It's the flesh versus the spirit. Um, and the flesh is not our body. What Paul means by the flesh is our sinful nature. So Paul is not some, like, precursor to Gnosticism. Um, he is saying that the flesh is our sinful nature. So it's not literally our body. Um, and so... By that reasoning, the flesh does not imply that the physical body is evil. Now, Gnosticism, uh, which is like a kind of religious misunderstanding, 
happened in the second century, so it wasn't quite present yet uh, when Paul was writing this letter, but we see hints of it here and there. Um, and so the, the flesh that Paul talks about is not our body, it is our sinful nature. And I think that's really important for us to understand, um, particularly when we walk through this. Oh, yes, Gnosticism uh, is a heresy that believes, uh, and, and I'm not going to tell a lot of it because I, some of it I can't grasp my head around. Um, so Lucas, you actually might be able to get better understanding of this. Um, but Gnosticism did believe that like the body uh, and the spirit like were separate. And so as a result, um, there's this like duality that's made where like you're, you can treat your body, you can do whatever you want with your kind of physical properties of your life um, because it doesn't matter because your spiritual like part of you is kind of um, separate from that. And so you could live in such a way that uh, was like, um, like prolific for your flesh, but that your spirit was kind of secure. Lucas, would you add anything? Oh, and they would have, like I said, believed that the physical body is evil, and so as a result, uh, they often lived a way that would like deprive, either deprive the body or like feed the body things it doesn't need. So their quarreling, the Corinthians' quarreling, mirrored the Corinthian culture, and it proved that they are actually controlled by the flesh. And so this is an issue of lifestyle, because their quarreling uh, was very much the way that the Corinthians lived their lives. So it said that they are controlled by their sinful nature, by their flesh. Um, and so it's an issue of maturity and also an issue of lifestyle. And so Paul, in kind of um, explaining all of this, the vision that's being caused in the church, he uses three separate analogies. Um, the first one is agricultural, uh, which is agricultural ones are always strange for us to like, parse into our culture because not many of us are like agricultural people in terms of like farmers. Um, but he uses an agricultural a cultural illustration to show that the celebrities that the church was following were simply servants. And Christ is actually the key player because they were beginning to elevate these celebrity pastors or preachers above Christ and that their word um, was actually in superseded Christ's authority in their lives. And so he's saying, hey, these people that you're making to be really special are not actually that special. They're simply just servants of Christ. Christ is a key player. He's the central one. He is the one that we should be um, seeing in our preaching and in those people. Um, that's why he says, like, uh, Apollos, wa- Paul, oh, I'm going to get the names wrong. One second. I planted, Paul. Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so there was, like, this kind of servant partnership that Paul and Apollos, for instance, did, um, but that God was the one who, who was responsible for the growth. And so as a result, he is the one that's a key player. And then he moves on to architecture, Um, because Paul, here in this passage, was a master builder. He planted the church, and he was the one who laid the foundation that others built upon rather than trying to destroy it. So Paul planted the church. He laid the foundation of who? Of Christ. He laid the foundation of Christ in their lives. And as a result, the people that he entrusted, so like Chloe, for instance, or Apollos, Uh, that kind of led those house churches, they were the ones that were supposed to build on that um, foundation of Christ, rather than trying to destroy it as they were doing with these factions and with this division. And so the first error that the Corinthians make is that they they relayed the wrong foundation. They relayed the foundation not based upon Christ, but based upon these celebrity preachers, and as they did that, there was division that was caused. There was this tearing of the flesh. Um, because Christ is the only foundation. 
He's the only foundation that is secure. He then goes on to say that various materials can be used to build the church. So he talks about uh, wood, hay, straw, uh, precious metals, and that God will ultimately judge each builder's work on the capital D day. Um, so you can like kind of read that to be the day of the Lord or when Jesus returns. And he says that it's going to be revealed by fire. So there is uh, a, a picture here that we see of revealing the true value of the work and also of purification. So fire in, in uh, the Bible is often used to show uh, purification as well. And so um, this is the kind of judgment that believers would receive the day that the Lord returns um, is based on the way that they built upon this foundation. And so it says like what is uh, wood and hay burns in the fire, but what is left is precious gold and metals. And so this is um, the materials that they use that Paul is beginning to assert that they're using the wrong ones. They're using these ones that are going to be burned away at that time. Because the second error is they were using the wrong materials. Um, and so the people that were using the wrong materials will still, su um, sorry, will suffer loss. They will suffer the loss of those things being burned away, but they will still be saved. So there is a sense of assurance here on the day, um, but there is an understanding that uh, what was built upon will, will fall away if it's faulty. And so they will still be saved. Uh, there's this assurance that they have, um, but that their reward may look a little bit different than they were expecting because they built upon a foundation that Paul had asserted was wrong and also that he said was with the wrong materials. Any questions upon that? Sometimes we read that and it's like kind of an obscure illustration. Awesome. So the last uh, illustration that he uses is the temple. And the word that he used here is naos. And the word naos here actually uh, specifies kind of the holy of holies. So it's God's, um, in the Old Testament, would be God's um, presence was kept there. It was a place that only the priest uh, could go once, the high priest could go once a year. There was all this purification and all of this um, process that they had to go through of ritual cleaning and washing and sacrifice in order to go there. But he says that now we are actually the, that temple. And so as God's temple, believers are corporeal, corporeally, oh, that's a hard word, corporeally home to his presence. And so he begins to dismantle this idea of the flesh and spirit duality by asserting that, like, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there is this, like, combination of spirit and flesh together, not a separation of them. And so we are, we are God's uh, temple of the Holy Spirit. And so in a frank warning to the Corinthians, those who destroy the temple, and, and it's inferred by causing division, will incur God's judgment. So they will incur God's judgment. There is an account that we as believers will have to make if we are the ones that are beginning to tear apart uh, the body by division, by causing division, by sowing those seeds in um, congregations and in the kind of the greater church. And so there is an account that we will have to make for that, that they will incur God's judgment in some way um, in that moment. And so Paul is saying that the leaders and the things that they allow to divide them are actually really just gifts that belong to all of them. That all of these people, as they are servants of Christ, belong to the church to um, benefit it, to grow it, um, to continue to build on that good foundation. And so together, all of those servants come under the authority of Christ, who ultimately submits to the Father. 
So there is a sense of like not this power that we would consider of like all these people are above, but instead there's this idea that the power that we experience comes from submission to Christ. It comes from uh, our submission to his lordship, to his leading, and to his teaching. And so we see that uh, this is kind of what Paul is saying is the cause of their division again, is it's their immaturity is causing this tearing and it's laying the wrong foundation with the wrong materials and they're elevating people to places that they shouldn't be. So as we see that, Paul, has to, Paul talks a lot about the leadership of the church. And so this is Paul's perspective on leadership that we see in chapter 4, verses 1 to 21. Um, this is actually one of my favorite uh, passages in the Bible because um, it's full of imagery. It's full of great picture. It's full of um, truth for our lives today. <clears throat> um, and I wish that we could go through it in like really uh, a lot of depth, but you know, we're already at 717. So we're going to go through this part and then have a short break. So what he's saying in this beginning piece is leaders are not superstars, like the Corinthians were saying, but they're servants and they're stewards. So uh, the word they use is for servants here is huperites, uh, which is the rower of a boat under strict orders. So they're like in the bottom of the ship. They're the ones like rowing. They're the ones like getting the boat. They're the ones working um, and they come under strict orders of the master who tells them how and when um, and in what measure to row. And so this is um, one of the pictures that we see of Christian leaders. And I want to be clear that um, when I say leaders, I don't necessarily just mean pastors. Like, all of us have a sense of leadership because uh, God is, is, uh, gives us that as a grace. Um, and so if there is a leadership that you walk in um, in the body of Christ, this is for us. So, so I'm not just saying pastors, although that was um, maybe specifically a cultural issue then, is this is just leaders in general. So I want us to just have that in our mind. And then the next one uh, for stewards is oikonomos, which is like a household manager. And so they're the ones that manage the affairs of the house. Um, they're the ones that come under the authority of the owner of the house. And so it's implied that this is obviously God. And so the key role of a steward is not eloquent speech and it's not power but it's faithfulness. And this is what Paul is trying to say, is that you can have all the eloquent speech and you can have all the power that you want, um, but that is not what the role of a steward is. It's actually faithfulness. And so Paul, uh, in this passage, then sarcastically challenges the Corinthians' opinion of themselves, with, and he contrasts it with the reality of his life. So he says sarcastically, well, you guys are rich, you guys are kings, you are wise, you are all of these things. But then he says, like, we are crushed, we are... Uh, those who are the refuse of the world. And so Paul is showing this um, power and kind of esteem that the Corinthians held themselves in. And then the apostle, the capital A apostle, the one who has authority um, by Christ to, to lead this church is actually considered to be the refuse of the world. So there's this kind of sarcastic picture that he paints of what the Corinthians thought that they were and what Paul actually is in terms of his leadership. And so as we read through this, Paul asserts that his motives in delivering this rebuke is not to bring them shame or disrespect. That's not his intent of doing so. Um, although he uses some strong sarcasm, although he uses some strong wording in this, um, it's not to bring them shame or disrespect. But instead, as their caring father in the faith, uh, he wants them to come to their senses. And he wants them to imitate his example. And so he says, like, you have many guides in Christ, but not many fathers. And so Paul is saying that I am your father in Christ. Be imitators of me. Walk this line of faithfulness out. 
because that is the way that we are God's stewards. That is the way that we are God's servants. Any questions about chapter 4? I lo- that's a great passage. I would encourage you to read it. Um, it's one of my favorites. Not that maybe I should have favorites, but it is. Awesome. Let's take a quick five-minute break. So we'll come back together at 726. Um, there's a great, great question that came up um, just in our, in our five-minute break, asking if when Paul's referring to himself as a refuse of the world, if that means that there's something more spiritual about um, Christian leaders being poor, um, and I don't think that's what he means. I think in this particular passage, he's contrasting the Corinthians in terms of their um, idea that they're like rich, they're kings, they're all these people. But Paul would be considered to be like the scum of the earth. I think that's maybe a, a more, um, an easier translation for us is that he's like the scum of the earth in terms of um, the way that he's viewed, in terms of maybe his lifestyle um, at that time. And so Paul was somebody who um, at one point was financially prosperous and at some was very poor. And so that's where you see in Philippians where he says, like, I know what it's like to live with a lot and I know what it's like to live with a little and I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, um, is uh, a matter of contentment. And so I don't think that he's asserting that, um, like, Christian leaders should be poor. Um, He is saying that they should be faithful and they should be good stewards of whatever God gives them. Um, But I don't think he's making that assertion. He's more just saying that, like, in the view of the Corinthians, he's like the scum of the world because he doesn't have that power. He doesn't necessarily have the riches. He doesn't have the status that the culture would have considered to be um, important to them. But that was a great question. Awesome. So we're going to jump into some ongoing issues with the Corinthians um, because actually 1 Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians. So there was actually another letter that would have uh, been written to the Corinthian church before this, but it was lost. And so um, sometimes in this passage or in this in this uh, book, there is references made to his previous letter that we don't have any record or manuscript of. And so we believe, again, that like the canon of scripture is true and good um, and correct. And so that letter is lost, but he does refer to that a little bit. And so there were some ongoing issues that were happening in the church. And these ongoing issues um, signal a change in subject matter, but is is linked by the arrogance of the Corinthians. So there is a shift, a dramatic shift in the, in the um, subject matter, but it's connected by the arrogance of the Corinthians. Um, what a connection point, hey? So the first one is um, sexual immorality in the church. And this is verses 1 to 13 of chapter 5. So here in this piece, um, Paul is dealing with an almost unbelievable issue at hand. And this one is of a man in, in the church Uh, being sexually involved with his stepmother, so with his uh, father's wife. And so it's likely assumed to be a stepmother. Now, there's no um, particular indication of whether or not his father was alive or not. It doesn't really matter because this is not uh, a very positive relationship. So this relationship that this man had was prohibited both by the Greco-Roman world and by Jewish law. So he is getting no pass anywhere, even in the Corinthian culture, which was very sexually permissive, uh, would still be considered like a no-go. And so uh, the term used here for immorality is porneia, um, and that word is kind of every form of sexual sin. And so Paul is kind of uh, uh, broadening this to be quite open, um, because Paul's horrified to hear that the standards of believers in Corinth has sunk below the world in which they are trying to reach, and in this particular moment is with their sexual ethic. 
And so the church is shown to be arrogant in this, and they've kind of relaxed their moral values around this. And what we can kind of infer from Scripture is that this issue has become public. So this is not just contained within the church, but it has become a public issue. And the, church, the church's lack of response in that moment is shameful. And so Paul is beginning to um, call the church out uh, for this arrogance that relaxed their values, uh, for the fact that it's become public, and the church is not responding to it in the way that they should. So what Paul does is he urges the church to, one, pronounce judgment uh, that comes in the, that, on this person, and that comes in the form of excommunication for the purpose of repentance and restoration. Now, this uh, particular passage is extremely challenging because, um, like, it, it literally talks about excommunicating somebody from the body. So we need to piece this together to understand what it truly means. Because to reiterate, um, flesh, in Pauline terms, refers to a lifestyle opposed to God's values. It is our sinful nature. And so Paul, in verse 5, uh, says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what he means by the destruction of the flesh, if flesh in our understanding is our sinful nature, is that the individual needs to recognize their sin, repent, and refuse to live in the flesh any longer. And so there is this continuous lack of repentance that this man has, although he knows the error of his ways. Um, And so in verses 6 and following, which 6FF, Uh, when it comes on the screen, but it just means six and following. Paul turns from the individual to the church, and he condemns their boasting as it has pervasive influence. Um, And he talks about this pervasive influence um, by using symbolism from the Passover, particularly from Exodus chapter 13, verse 7. So since Christ is the believer's Passover sacrifice, they should be like Israel, removing the leaven, or sin, from their households or their lives. And so this is what Paul is saying, that a little leaven uh, leavens a whole lump. And so that's what he's saying, is that this has begun to, be, uh, to become pervasive within the church. And so he condemns the church, actually maybe even more strongly than he condemns this person. Um, and then in chapters 9, to, or sorry, verses 9 to 10, Paul returns to the immoral brother um, and his previous instructions in a different letter to break social ties with those who are immoral. And so he clarifies in this moment that he is not referring to unbelievers. In this not associating with those who are immoral, he is not referring to unbelievers. It is those that profess faith that they are not to fellowship with. And so this is an individual living in open, unrepentant sin. And it's not an open, unrepentant sin that is just affecting this individual But it is so um, unrepentant and so um, kind of flaunted in the church that it's beginning to pervade into other people's life. And so it highlights, and then Paul highlights kind of more than sexual immorality. He talks about greed and um, slander and all of these things that will, again, begin to pervade. And so the, the, the role of the faith community is not to judge those outside. It's not to judge those outside the church, but rather those within the church. And he says this because they have been transformed by Christ. He talks about them being sanctified or set apart. And so when the church gets this confused, when they flip the equation where they begin to um, apply this to those outside the church, it often tolerates sin among believers, while it grows judgmental of the world. Now, we are looking at Paul's letter here. Paul's letter is likely 
uh, influenced and inferred by what we see in terms of conflict resolution in the Gospels, where there is this pattern of um, conflict resolution that we see is God's best uh, for conflict resolution. And so we are at that end piece of the conflict resolution. So when we see somebody living in open, unrepentant sin, our first response is not to excommunicate them, um, but there is a kind of set of values and ways that we can work through that before we get to that place. And so the, the point of excommunication is not to shame somebody or to say that they're too far away from redemption or to say that their restoration will never happen. Um, but it is a way of um, hopefully causing them to see the error of their ways and walk in repentance. So this is a challenging verse. This is a challenging passage that we find uh, in, in Scripture. And um, it's very extreme because this has been addressed by Paul in a previous letter. He has been, uh, he has likely talked with the house leaders of those churches. And in amongst all of that, this is like a very long, drawn-out, ongoing issue and so we jump into this passage at kind of the last um, piece of resolution, of conflict resolution that is happening. So I don't want us to misunderstand this piece that this is the like first initial response to conflict resolution because we are still to deal with each other with grace and with mercy um, and with a heart of restoration. Um, but that there is, uh, Paul is showing that there is eventually a moment where it is better for that person to walk in repentance um, in a way that doesn't uh, begin to pervade in the rest of the church. And so we need to be careful about how we read this, because although it is truthful and scriptural, um, there is a lot of backstory that we don't get to see uh, before this point. Um, so this is a bit of a challenging one. This is a bit of a difficult passage. Any questions on this? Uh, any clarifications maybe that I need to make, um, or that uh, maybe even Lucas or Lisa, you would kind of add? Awesome. Well, we're going to turn a really big corner from sexual immorality to lawsuits against believers. Um, what a shift, hey? What a dramatic one. <clears throat> so Paul does make this shift, um, and he moves uh, to believers relying on corrupt regional or civil courts to settle civil matters. Um, now, here he's not referring to the Roman courts. Uh, the Roman courts were known to be upright and actually quite just, and so he's not referring to that. He's referring to like a regional um, or civil court to settle civil matters. And so believers were kind of uh, circumnavigating some of the processes that they need to have in place first um, and kind of going to this like kind of last straw moment. And so the link, there is a link between this last passage and this one is kind of the risk of adopting values of sexual, no, of secular culture that will cause corruption. Um, and so that's where he's kind of making the link is that he's beginning to see the Corinthians adopt secular culture uh, in a way that's really damaging to the church. And so in verses 9 to 10, uh, this kind of behavior is, um, he says, is inappropriate for kingdom purposes as a list, list of vices that he notes. Um, and he notes them in, in verses 9 and 10. And so he's saying that this kind of behavior of adopting secular culture, um, of, of going to these civil courts that were corrupt to settle lawsuits, is just as inappropriate as any other kind of sin that they're walking in. And so Paul says simply that they're made of better stuff. Like, you know better. You're made of better stuff. That through their salvation experience, they've been washed, they've been set apart or sanctified, and they've been made righteous. And so I want to, again, make a little bit of a clarification, is that uh, this is not prohibiting or even discouraging the use of our justice system. 
um, in order to work things out. Um, things in, in the church have often been pushed under the rug and uh, have not been used in terms of like our justice systems in a timely manner or an appropriate manner. And so Paul is not saying that every single dispute needs to be settled in the church without any type of um, covering from our justice system or even um, walking out of that process. But he's saying that um, in ways that it can be, so in some disputes, in some disagreements, um, that there is a better standard than using these corrupt um, systems, although there is a place for justice. There is a place for justice, I believe, uh, in our justice system. Um, although not perfect, I think it does impute and uh, give justice to people. And so I don't think that he is saying in any way, and I don't want us by any stretch to consider that uh, we can just settle things all the, all the time in court or in church, um, because I think that that is clearly not the case, and it's often been done in a way in the church to uh, actually cause much more harm than it would do good. Um, and so Paul is saying that we need to be considerate about how we conflict resolve with each other. Um, any questions that you would have about that one? Yeah, so yeah, it's not so much always that you're getting justice, you're getting a legal decision. Yep, that's a, a great thing to think about. Um, I, I do also believe that we uh, live in Canada and that we have laws in Canada um, and that the reality is believers are not exempt from following those laws. And so in the moments where those laws are broken, that is a moment where justice does need to be served um, in our justice system. Um, but we can also be people of mercy towards um, those who, who make bad decisions, those who sin, those who um, wrong other people. Um, but I think we need to be thoughtful about how that is done. But yeah, it is, it is sometimes a legal decision rather than justice, and so that, you know, our, our justice system is not perfect, um, but it is a system in which we're under. Awesome, so uh, we're going to finish off with believers and prostitutes, because he kind of wraps this whole moment uh, with some more sexual immorality. Um, so in the conclusion to this chapter, Paul kind of deals with the laissez-faire attitude towards cult prostitution. Again, we talked about the, the cult of Aphrodite, um, and so there was a lot of ritual prostitution that happened as a result of that. And so the Corinthian church was adopting, again, the secular um, kind of lifestyle of, of um, proliferating that kind of lifestyle. And so he uses the Corinthian expression in this moment. He says, all things are lawful. Um, and it's likely that this cult prostitution uh, in Aphrodite's temple was not considered illegal. And so that's what he means by all things are lawful. It's, it's a term that the Corinthians would have used. But then he adds to the check. And he says, not all things are helpful. So all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And that we must refuse to allow sinful behavior to have mastery over our lives. And so he says, like, all things are lawful in Corinth, but not all things are going to be beneficial. They're not going to be helpful to you. They will actually lead you into a secular lifestyle that will be farther and farther away from Christ. And so he says, we have to refuse to allow sinful behavior to have mastery over our lives. And so in verses 13 to 16, Paul refutes a line of thinking that says, since physical appetites pass away, um, that this is the same thing with our sexual appetites. By saying, uh, this is not the case, we are joined with Christ. Again, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so in the way that our appetites can uh, pass away, like we can satisfy that with food, he's saying that there is something markedly different uh, with our sexual appetites because we are joined with Christ. 
We are his temple. We are the temple that houses his Holy Spirit. He says that our bodies and our behavior matter to God because he has a plan for our physical bodies. And this is uh, a reference to resurrection, um, but he has a plan for our bodies. And so uh, this is not the case where our, we can't conflate our physical appetite with sexual appetite. Um, because union with a prostitute then breaks that union with Christ um, because it is uh, outside of the realm of God's best for humanity and for um, the way that we see our sexual ethic. And so what he says is that believers are to flee. And this word flee is again in a continuous tense. So it's not just like a flee once and be done, but it's a continuous fleeing um, from sexual immorality. And so again, in 18 to 20, uh, he counters another Corinthian claim that sin is outside of the body. Again, this beginning of a precursor of Gnosticism, that sin is outside of the body. And so as a result, it doesn't matter what we do sexually because it's outside of the body. But he refutes that. He actually asserts that sexual immorality is, the, is a sin that is against our body. And so there's this idea that there's um, like a physical uh, challenge and damage and, and uh, breaking that happens when we walk in sexual immorality. And then he finally again asserts that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so this is uh, how that changes the way that we view um, our sexual appetites and how we live in a way that is, again, like he said at the very start of his letter, is a way that is sanctified, that's set apart from the society and the culture that we find ourselves in. Well, I think we're actually going to end there um, because this section on seven is quite long. Um, chapter seven is extremely long. Uh, and I want to make sure that we get through it all in one go um, because to break it apart is going to be confusing for us. And so what we're going to do is we will pick up where we left off next week. Um, now, to just let you know, we are going to skip 1 Corinthians 11 to 14, uh, not because I think it's unimportant. I think it's actually incredibly central to the letter, um, but because Corinthians 11 to 14 deals with worship, order of worship, and also... Um, uh, spiritual gifts and the expression of that in the church. And so those are some of the issues in Paul that we're going to be talking about in our fourth week. And so we're going to uh, breeze over that section and skip it um, because we're going to be coming back to it in that last section. And then it also means that uh, we will hopefully get through the rest of 1 Corinthians. Um, and so any last questions before we close our time together? I'm going to give you some homework. Sorry. Um, this is your homework for next week is uh, if you hadn't or haven't, or even if you have, um, please read First and Second Corinthians before you join us next week. Um, I think that will help just all of us, you know, have a simple refresher of those two books. Um, I would encourage you to read First Corinthians and then Second Corinthians in one sitting. Uh, again, we talked about that last week about how these letters would have been read all at once. And so uh, it is good for us to just read through it once. So I'm going to give you some homework um, for next week. I'm not going to grade you. <laughs> we're not even going to ask. I'm going to trust that you are mature people who will uh, read these two books because I think it will truly uh, bring a little bit of richness to our, our continued conversation around 1 Corinthians. Um, but other than that, if there's no more questions, uh, then we'll pray. I'd have to do some digging on that. But um, yeah, that is an interesting perspective that there's a different response have, and, and it also says, talks about um, the way out, where God will always provide you a way out in those moments, and that, um, that he allows us to, to walk through that and to experience that way out. Um, yeah, I'm, I, would have to, I would have to think about that, but that's a good, that's a very good thought.
um, that there's like kind of that immediacy of response that the power of temptation can bring, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it probably would be. Like, it probably would be a, a word that would be used to flee, um, like, conflict or flee uh, those kind of things. And so I think in that, con- the, the continuous tense is more just, like, the way it is acted upon. Um, and so I'm sure that there are probably, there would probably be other applications to that word, but it would still have this continual walking away from or fleeing from. Um, and I think that that fleeing from keeps us, uh, again, set apart. Um, in terms of the way that we view our bodies and the way that we view other people's bodies as well. Um, and so, yeah, no, that's a good thought. Wonderful. Well, let's pray. God, we thank you so much uh, for your word and for uh, the richness that your Holy Spirit brings as we uh, journey through some of your books of your word. God, I pray that you continue to just um, allow our hearts and our minds to continue to mull over this so that you can continue to reveal truth to our hearts Um, So that maybe things that need to be solidified or some um, dots that you've been kind of stringing together would continue uh, to make sense to us and just root deeply in our hearts and minds. Uh, God, we do this not so that we can puff ourselves up with knowledge and wisdom, um, but so that we can be transformed by your word uh, and be uh, people who are in a greater likeness and image of you. And so God, we thank you uh, that you do that for us as a grace towards us. And so Lord, I pray that this would be a moment that We let, yes, learn about your word to develop our minds, but so that it roots deeply in our hearts so that with our hands we can serve your people who need it well. God, we love you, uh, and we just wrap all of this in your spirit. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.